Good morning, everyone. We're continuing in our study of Matthew, and we're in what is called the Olivet uh, Discourse, where Jesus, in chapters 24 and 5, has left the, uh, the temple area and has gone into the Mount of Olives. And you remember, when they were leaving this enormously beautiful, beautiful temple, one of the wonders of the world almost, this was an incredible architectural feat where Herod the Great took the second temple, which was constructed under the leadership of Zerubbabel, remember when the Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem after the 70-year bondage under Babylonian rule. You remember some of that, that background. So the temple was rebuilt, <clears throat> and it was finished, but it was a much smaller temple. And so Herod, in order to partially ingratiate himself with the Jewish people, built this beautiful temple, or at least he enlarged and embellished the existing temple, so that it became literally, maybe not officially, but literally, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world for its magnificence and size and the uh, just the augustness of this temple and all of its surroundings. And so the Jesus and the disciples are leaving. Remember, he was just issued seven woes against the leadership for misteaching, misapplying God's grace through the law and the sacrifices. And as they're leaving, look at this, Jesus, did you, oh, what a beauty. And Jesus says, wait, let me tell you something. <clears throat> this temple, which you so love today, there's coming a day when the entire thing will be torn down. Not one block will be left upon another. And then he talks about the return. And the disciples' first question is what? When will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And when are you coming back in the end of the age? Remember, those are the two questions that are being answered by Jesus here. And Jesus' purpose in these chapters is not to give us a definitive step-by-step, date-by-date, activity-by-activity, and sign-by-sign specificity of the time when he's coming. So you put it all together, whatever, and we know he's coming on September 23rd, 2034. He's not doing that. What we said last week, and it is so essential when we look at all of these biblical passages that have to do with the return of the Lord, the end of the age, what will be happening internationally, nationally, financially, socially, economically, religiously. What, what's going to be happening? Well, a lot of stuff is going to be happening, and there's going to be an increased intensification of this until right before he returns. So the point is this. I want to make sure we get this. Because unfortunately in the church, this issue, like other secondary issues, this is a secondary issue. The primary issue is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, 
died for our sins. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Who said that according to the scriptures? What did I just quote generally? 1 Corinthians 15, the first several verses. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to gather his people into the kingdom. And he said he's coming back. So the emphasis is not upon the dating. He is more interested in stating his return than dating his return. And it's a secondary issue. Because the primary issue is this. As he came the first time for the redemption of his people, so also he will return in like manner. Remember the angel said, as you saw him return, he's going to, I mean, leave, he's coming back in like manner to gather his people into his kingdom. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Correct? That's primary. The other issues related to it are secondary. Very important, but secondary. And so what we need to be very careful to do is where there may be disagreements or misunderstandings or whatever within the context of the body of Christ. We need not allow that which Jesus has given to unify and encourage us to be used to disunify and discourage us. Amen? So, if there are folks in here who believe in a seven-year period of tribulation and a rapture before it or in the middle of it, right at the end of it, God bless you. Hold it biblically. If there are folks in here who say, no, I don't see it that way. I just believe that everything's going to get worse and worse until the end, and when Jesus is coming back, there's not going to be any of this seven-year kind of thing and a rapture, whatever. God bless you. Because what's the primary issue within the context of his return? Say it again, Liz. He's coming back. Can we say amen? That's the issue. And so do not involve yourself with controversy. Share, teach the best you understand, but also with this. I am giving you information that I believe is correct biblically as best I understand, but I cannot be positive. <gasps> How can you not, brother? Well, I asked this question last week, and I'll ask it again. <clears throat> Who in here, you will stake your eternal security and heaven itself on the absolute fact that you are absolutely correct? So the answer is we don't know. So take down these two verses that may be very instructive, not only in this context, but in many, 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 many other contexts in which the people of God become involved with one another over controversies. 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 13 verses 9 and 12. Very instructive verses that are written by the most brilliant man other than Jesus probably who walked the face of the earth and by written by the man who was given the greatest revelation of any man who ever had shoe leather except for Jesus, the Apostle Paul. And what does he say in verse 9? Somebody, 1 Corinthians 13, 9, anybody know it? We know in what? In part. In other words, Ron, we don't know everything. In other words, there are things we don't know, don't you see? And what does verse 12 say? We what? 
see what? We see in a focus. Our eyes are out of focus. We see in a mirror dimly. We can't see it what? Clearly. Celeste, right? And because we don't know everything and we see everything kind of out of focus, what does that mean? None of us have the definitive answer. There's no television preacher that has a definitive answer. There's no pastor in the church, elder in the church, that has a definitive answer. Phil Widener doesn't have it. Peter Davidson doesn't have it. Bill Treby. We don't have it. You know where the definitive answer is? God. God has the definitive answer. Now, there is an answer, but we just don't know enough. So let me, having said all that, move through this at a decent pace. Chapter 24, verses 15, maybe to 31. We'll see how that works out. So when Jesus, so when you, Jesus is continuing to answer the first question of when will these things happen that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple will occur? Now look, he's talking to men and women who are with him that day, who are living in that period of time and who are walking away from the temple and he is telling them, answering them, when will this city be destroyed? When will this temple be destroyed? That's what he's answering. And so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You see what, he, look, what Matthew said? Be careful what you think. Do you see it? Be careful. In our passage this morning, Jesus continues to answer the disciples' the disciples' first question of the when of the destruction. He's listed already. Remember last week we gave nine signs. And in each of, those, each of those nine signs that he gave in the previous chapter, verses 5 to 14, you remember those signs, nine of them. Two of them were descriptions of the signs, but nine signs altogether. All of that happened by the time of 70 A.D. Every one of them happened. Every one of them happened. He's continuing now to addition to these signs. And he says this. He refers to Daniel when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. What in the world does that mean? You remember that the most holy place on earth for Judaism before 70 A.D., where was the most holy place on earth for Judaism? Where specifically was it? In the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, although the entire earth was filled with the presence of our God, the Holy of Holies was that place on earth in the temple. You remember the third compartment, if you would, a room in the temple. The outer court, the holy place, and the most holy place. In the most holy place were the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. You may have seen the movie. You may remember this. And what was in the most holy place most brilliantly and most specifically and in greatest and most full revelation and presence as God could be on the earth. His presence. The presence.
presence of God. That's the most holy place on the earth for the Jews. And it was so holy that only once a year, one man, the high priest, the high priest, consecrated himself through the shedding of the blood of an animal, goes in and cleanses the holy place so that he can return and then sacrifice an animal, Leviticus 16, for the redemption or for the forgiveness or for literally the putting away of sin for another year for the nation. And so once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice that he will dip his finger in that bowl of blood and seven times, seven times, seven times splash the Ark of the Covenant with the blood. Why seven? Remember seven biblically for the most part reminds us or is a statement of completion, fullness. And so what that means is that for this past year's sin, This blood of this animal is the full putting away of the sin of the nation. You got that? You notice I did not say forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not available in the Old Testament. The sins are put away until the Lamb of God on the cross pays his blood for all those sins that have been put away, if you would, stored away somewhere, if you would. So at the cross, all those sins of all those people for all those years which have been put away were then brought forth, if you would, gathered up and laid upon the shoulders of Shechem. And then the sin of the people of God who were to come until the end of the age were then also poured upon the shoulders of Shechem. Why do I say Shechem? It means burden bearer, this Shechem. And this Shechem, God's Messiah, God's Son, dies and all of the sin that had been put away under the old covenant and were forgiven under the new were gathered together and all of it was put away as to its penalty that was due. Can you say amen? That's the most holy place on earth. I'm not traveling fast enough to get through the rest of this. Please, I don't say forgive me if I don't, but we, we have to be remembering what's happening here. And so... In Daniel, remember Daniel in 605 B.C. along with some other royal family members and other people of Israel were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. He came in there, he put Zedekiah on the throne, and he takes some of the best people with him. And he's going to retrain these people and refocus them and reacclimate them, if you would, to his way of life. And so you remember Daniel. And then we're traveling along in Daniel. We don't have to go into the history of Daniel. And then Daniel, the 
Lord brings Daniel to a place finally of beginning to give him a lot of visions and prophecies of the end days. And there's a lot there. But one of the statements that God makes is the statement that we just read. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's talked about in Daniel chapter 11. I think it's in your notes in chapter 12. He mentions that terminology. When you see the abomination of desolation, then, then know that the end is near. Lest of the end of what? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Remember what he's talking about. What is the desolation of abomination that Daniel is talking about through the inspiration and leadership of the Holy Spirit? It is that activity by any unauthorized person. And who is the only authorized person? The high priest. To make any unauthorized sacrifice. What is the only authorized sacrifice? The shedding of the consecrated, the blood of the consecrated animal for the forgiveness of sin on the day of atonement. Right? Do we, do we see the specificity here? So any unauthorized person and or unauthorized sacrifice or the combination of both. Doesn't matter. Entering into the holy of holies or the most holy place the Bible or God himself calls that an abomination that makes desolation. It destroys, if you would, the sanctity of the presence of God. It's not that, oh, I got it. But God withdraws himself from that because of the presence of that which is not of his will. Don't you see? And it's a desolation. And the only way to, if you would, repair it or restore the consecrated location for God's presence is to go through the ceremony of reconsecration, of re-cleansing. You just can't kind of go in there and sweep it up and move along and pretend it didn't happen and, you know, whatever. This is the worst event that could happen to Judaism. That God would leave his holy place because of the desolation, the abomination that makes desolate of an unauthorized person making an unauthorized sacrifice. Do we get the solemnity, the, the soberness of this? For a Jew, this is like, <gasps> do you remember those of you who were raised Catholic? And I think I've mentioned this before. And even though you're not Catholic anymore, I think you will get this. You go into the church, and as you enter, way down the corridor, you know, the aisle is what is called the what? The altar. Are, are you with me? Any of you remember this? What was so significant about the altar? What was significant about the altar? That it had pretty paintings there and a couple of statues and some gold and a railing and a little box? Was that what was significant? No. What was significant? Who was supposed to be there? It's called the real 
presence. Do you remember communion? Do you remember the Eucharist? What do they call it? The real presence. And the priest would come in, you remember, and first sacrifice for himself. Do you remember that? And then sacrifice for the people. Do you remember that? And then he would open a little curtain and a little box. Do you remember this? And then he would take out what? What do they call it? Hmm? The chalice, the wafers, right? And then he would serve it to the people. That's, in their theology, is the real presence of God. Oh, God is with us, but... And you can imagine that somebody, not a priest, would go in there and, and do something very horrible. And, you know, and what I don't know even what to say, but... How would you feel, even though you're still not, you're not Catholic anymore? Don't you feel a little shuddering that someone would go in there and you know maybe dance start whatever before the? How do you feel about that? Those of you who were Catholic, do you still feel a little unsettled about it? Come on, come on, don't you? Think how the Jewish people must have felt. And so this prophecy was given, and some years later, in about 164 BC. A, the Seleucid emperor named Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, in other words, Antiochus the Exalted, the Epiphanes means exalted, has come in and he's a Jew hater. And there's background for this, but we won't go into that. And he surrounds Jerusalem and he's gonna, he captures Jerusalem. And he causes the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, to be ceased. And he takes a pig and sacrifices it on the altar of God. That happened in 164 B.C. That's the abomination of desolation that Jesus refers to. Now, there's a lot of history. And we move up to Jesus' day. When you see the abomination of desolation, in other words, what? When you see that same kind of activity in the Jewish temple, you know, that kind of activity, know what? It's time for the end. Okay, we got all that? And so, Jesus is speaking this, and I don't know, it's about 32, 33 or so A.D., AD 68, the Roman general Titus is coming in. And he surrounds Jerusalem. And finally in 70 AD, the, the armies break through and he erects the standard of Zeus in the temple. What is that, Murphy? The abomination of of desolation occurs again. When? In 70 AD. That's the historical reference that Jesus points to as the immediate or within a few years of immediate sign that Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. And you know the history. They destroyed Jerusalem tore down the temple so that not one block was left upon another. In 
And so when that happens, verse 16, Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. Beware, be ready. And then he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Did you, did you look at the context? Folks teach this out of context. So what does verse 16 say? Those where? Where? Judea. Does it say Washington, D.C.? Does it say West Wego, Louisiana? Does it say Mexico City? Where does it say, Jerry? Judea. Where's Judea? The very country where Jesus is standing. And what is the capital of Judea? Jerusalem. So, when you see that happen, those of you, those who live in this area, this country, get out! Get out of town. When this begins to happen, get yourself away from this place. <clears throat> Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take anything that is in his house. Get out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Get out. Get out. Why? Because absolute destruction is going to occur. Now, does that remind you, do you have in your notes another reference I have from Genesis? No. Can it possibly be said that a Bible that the Bible can be taught without any reference to Genesis. I honestly don't think so. I honestly don't think so. I, that's not a pun. I don't think so. If you were to look at Genesis 19, verse 17, I'm going to take a little while because I'm not going to get finished anyway, so I may as well just kind of float along here. And if you, know, if you were hoping for getting through this today, I'm sorry about that. Lot... Genesis 14, who is Abraham's nephew, and Abraham are living in Canaan, and their flocks and their folks are growing, and there's contention. And Abraham comes along and says, look, we're having too much difficulty with the family members and, the, you know, your herdsmen and your herdsmen and, hey, your goats are on my property and your, your, your sheep are eating my... Well, okay, why don't we do this? Let's separate. You, 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 you go in one part of the country, I'll go in the other part of the country. You go over there, I'll go over here. You go over here, I'll go over there. So Abraham defers to him. Abraham's a king. He's a sheik. Lot is a nephew. Abraham's in charge. Abraham is the man of God. But he defers. Don't you see that the greatest in the kingdom of God are able to and should do a whole lot more deferring? Amen? A whole lot more deferring. And so Lot looks up and he sees the valley of the Jordan. Man, this is some good-looking country. He looks across there and he sees that the land over there is better than where he has here. And he sees opportunities over there that he doesn't see here. And he sees possibilities and he sees business things and relate. Who knows what he sees? And it's, he lifted up his eyes. It doesn't say he lifted up his eyes to the Lord. He lifted up his eyes and saw the natural benefits, don't you say? And he saw all the natural benefits. Were the natural benefits? Well, of course they were. Isn't it better for your sheep to be 
graze in lush green areas and on the side of a mountain? Wouldn't you say that, Ken? Isn't that better for your family and for your business and for your... Isn't that better? Yes, naturally. The mistake he made was he did not ask God. But he made all the natural assessments. He allowed the natural to lead him rather than God to use the natural as signpost to his will. Did you hear the difference? And so, all of the, you see him, he's moving toward the cities of the plain. And then he's living in the gate of the city, which means he's part of the official establishment of the city. But what city are we talking about? Sodom. Sodom. And in verse 18, the Lord appears to Abraham and tells him, hey, you're going to have a son, Sarah laughs. He didn't laugh. I did laugh. You didn't laugh. You're going to call his name Isaac. And then the Lord says, I'm going down to Sodom. I'm wiping them out. And that's when Abraham says, peradventure. That's King James, isn't it? Interesting? Could it be that, what? The God of righteousness would wipe out the righteous with the unjust, the just with the unjust. And so remember Abraham keeps apologizing. Well, if it's only this many, that many, we get down to how many? Ten. And the Lord said, that's enough. He doesn't say it. I mean, he just stops the, the deal. I'm going down. If I see ten righteous people, won't destroy the place. So he gets there. And without all the details, remember, who lives there a lot in his wife, and who else? They have how many daughters? Two or three? Three daughters or two? Two daughters. And the two daughters are married. Correct? Were they married or not? They're what? Betrothed. And it's almost married, but okay, they have two men in their lives. Interesting. The Lord comes to Lot and he says, Get out, get out. And Lot said, Well, I like it here. It's comfortable. You know, you don't understand, Lord, the ministry that I have here. Get out, get out. Well, no, really. There are many hanging on to ministries and locations where God has moved on. Many. There are many churches that God has moved on from. That is just an outside, exterior thing. Many. Isn't that right? Many. And the Lord says, get out. Nah. How many of you have heard that God will not make you do what you do not want to do? How many have heard that? That God will not work against your free will, that we have free will and God won't overcome that, you know, and go against it. Haven't you heard that teaching? That we have free will and God will not touch your free will. Well, go ahead and read what it says in Genesis 19. And the angel took Lot by the arm and he dragged him and his family out. Thank God that he overcomes and always overcomes my will to do contrary. I don't want that kind of a will that can oppose effectively the will of God. Now you may, I don't. Why? Because I'm too afraid of my personal will. 
Jesus says, get out. Get out. You hear the same kind of thing. And alas, the women who are pregnant and those of nursing infants, and hopefully it's not on a Sabbath. He gives all of these 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 statements about the things that can slow you down and prevent you and me from hearing and doing the Lord's will immediately. Now there's an application, obviously, that if this place is going to be destroyed by 10 o'clock, we need to move ahead and get out of here. But you see, this is also a statement of God to his people. When he says something, we are not to be preoccupied with the other issues of life, no matter how important they are, in preference for his will. For then there will be great, verse 21, great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and never will be. The word then is the Greek word T-O-T-E, which can mean a couple of different things. It probably means at that time. Jesus is talking about the time when there will be a desolation of the holy place, the most holy place. He says then. I don't believe he's talking about then, all of a sudden going 2,000 years later. The context would not hold that. He's telling these men what's going to happen in our lifetime. This generation, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And so when you see the abomination of desolation, then, at that time, at that time, with the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple, will begin. Then, you see, at that time, something will happen. If you would, a clock will be set into motion. A clock will be set into motion, if you would. There will begin a protracted period of persecution and tribulation. A period of increasing distress culminating in the triumphant return of Christ. Now that's what he's saying here. That's the plain understanding of the words of the Messiah. However, even though this will be an extended tribulation, what does it mean? From A.D. 70 until when? Sometime in the future, which means the second, the next second, the next second, the next second. That's the future, the next second. Between then and now, if you would, This does not preclude the much shorter and more concentrated period of persecution or tribulation just prior to his return. And so the period between Jesus' first, you know, I'm sorry, of his ascension, remember when he goes up, and his return, the period between when he leaves the earth and when he returns is called the inter- Advent period. Inter means what? Between. Advent means the appearing. The first advent it happens when? When the Son of God becomes incarnate in the womb of Mary and is born. That's the first advent, the first appearing of our great God and Savior. The second one will be the reappearing or the return of our great God and Savior in the clouds. Well, the period between that, whether it's 2,000 years, 2,126 years, 3,000, I don't know how long it's going to be, but the period is called the inter-advent period, just to let you know if you ever hear that word. 
what we do know is this. I don't know whether these signs and wonders, which we'll get into next week now, are to be taken literally. Some of them look like yes. Some of them look like no way. Some of them look like, no, these are images or symbols, but often images and symbols can also be identified in real events. So is there going to be a 200 million man army out of China to attack? I don't know. Could be, right? Could it be that there will be a seven, I mean, whatever, how many nations, confederacy that will rise out of Europe? Yes, it could be. I don't know. But what I'm saying to you is this. Absolutely this and that and that's happening, or absolutely this and that and the other is happening. So what we know is this. When the angel said to the disciples, after the ascension, you can imagine all of them like this. Oh, look at that. I'm, I'm sure. Julio, you and I have been like that. And he says, why are you guys standing around here? Don't stand around here. This same Jesus whom you saw what? Going up in the clouds will what? Return in like manner. He's coming back the same way. But there's going to be a period of time that is immediately going to have a horrible tribulation for the Jewish people. And the temple will be destroyed. Well, it's going to be rebuilt. Maybe so. I don't know. I can't bet my, bet my life on it. Can you bet your life on it, David? Anybody bet your eternal life on it? So what? Ed and Eddie, we don't know. Could be, could not be. But we do know this, that after 70 AD, the protracted period, inter-advent period, is going to be a continuing period of wars and rumors of wars and distress of nations, etc., etc., and bad weather and you know all that. And I believe, and I think the scripture bears it out, that this will be an increased intensification and activity of all of this stuff until the great day when the Lord himself actually does return. Does that preclude in, in anybody's theology, maybe mine, maybe not, a period of great, great tribulation, a, a rapture, whatever. It doesn't preclude, nor does it include. It just says this, that whatever is going to happen, don't worry about it. Jesus is in control, and he's coming back. And whichever way or another way that we're not even aware of, that he decides to return, is going to be good. There are believers who feel, well, if there's no rapture, you're focusing on the wrong thing. We focus on him who died and who was raised and who returns for us. Right? Next week, we'll just continue with the rest of the chapter and get into some of the parables.